1: This is a crowd podcast.
2: It's January 1943 in California. It's a mild morning and a crowd is gathering outside the Hall of Justice. The building's 14 stories high. It takes up nearly a whole block in Los Angeles and stretches off to the horizon and into the sky. It's where justice is served and spent, the courts and the clink in one building. Cases are tried on one floor and guilty defendants spend their lives behind bars on another. Outside, newspaper sellers shout over the chatter because the front pages are full of one thing It's not the war, and it's not Roosevelt or Eisenhower. It's Errol Flynn, and a drama all of his own making. On screen, he's Hollywood's leading man. Dashing, daring. A pencil moustache on his lip, a dimple in his chin, and a glint in his eye. He's a swashbuckling superstar. The original action hero performing his own stunts and swordwork. But now, that's not the Errol we see, not as he glides through the throng into the marbled halls and onto the courtroom. His suit's sharp, and his leather shoes are soft and silent on the hard floor, his hair is lacquered down, not a strand out of place. But as Errol stands in the dark. This is how the courtroom reporter sees him, this is what he writes. Flynn's eyes were red speckled, unslept, and his cheeks were chalk. His smile was patent, false. There were strings in his face, taut and extruded. Flynn knew exactly what was at stake. He's accused of statutory rape, of sleeping with two teenagers as a 33-year-old man, knowing they're below the age of consent. They're in the courtroom too. One's a 16-year-old, Peggy, but she has experience beyond those years. That's what Errol's lawyer says. When Peggy stands in the dock, she tries to be prepared. She dresses to try to dodge the mud slung by Errol's lawyers. She wears a modest summer dress, no makeup, flat shoes, and two long braided plaits, finished with ribbons tied in bows. But who will the jury believe? The full grown man or the teenage girl? The star or his accuser? Errol's fate hangs on their decision, on his performance. Because that's what it is, a good guy act. Five years before his day in court, Errol writes an article. It's for Photoplay, a magazine that delves into the private lives of the public's biggest stars. He's invited to write about Hollywood and hedonism. Is the city as wild as people say? This is what Errol writes. As near as I can get it, everything's alright in Hollywood, providing no gossip columnist sees you. The cardinal sin of Hollywood is to be caught. Errol's playing a new game. Big studios usually step in with backhanders and bribes to keep their stars, sins, quiet. Even they can't do enough for Errol. But he knows the power of reputation. How whispers and rumors keep the box office ticking. How myths gain a momentum all of their own. Now, as Errol sits in front of a packed gallery, in front of Peggy, the myth could be about to catch up with the man. The jury leaves. The public gallery whispers and rustles, and hours tick by. Thoughts swirl through Errol's head as he teeters between stardom and prison. And then the judge returns. He stares out at the crowd and starts to speak. He ends with a bang of the gavel. There's a pop of flashbulbs, a rising tide of cheers from outside. Errol's cleared. Innocent. He shakes hands with his team. A wolfish grin spreads across his face. And on the way out of the halls of justice, he shoots a look. It's to a girl. She's working behind the snack bar, just 18. She's the daughter of a senior policeman in the LAPD, and she returns it. Errol's already got her number. He's already invited her to afternoon tea. And in a little over a year, she'll be his wife and pregnant with his child. You see, Errol lives like his characters. Fast, free, with danger always close, morals out of sight, and a girl on his arm. And that doesn't tend to have happy endings for anyone. Errol's story starts on the other side of the world, at the end of a romance. It's a hot night under southern skies. Errol and his girlfriend are fighting. They're two teenagers, watching love fall apart for the first time. Errol's been expelled from one of Sydney's top schools He's hanging with a gang, young men with hot tempers, big egos and sharp razors. His girlfriend, on the other hand, she's better than that. A socialite on the city scene. And she tells him he's going nowhere. That he's destined for the gutter. She's not going with him. She plucks a ring off her finger and throws it back at Errol. He watches it fly past his face, turns to see it skid under a piano. He reaches under, grabs the ring and walks out the door. And he keeps walking into a pawn shop. Then he walks out with the cash and onto a ship. It's the 1920s and the British Empire has spread to every corner of the globe. From Canada to South Africa, India to Australia, a quarter of the world now answers to London. It's gotten so big, parts of the empire have started making their own empires. And after World War I, Australia claimed a chunk of green tropical island off their north coast. But it isn't all green. It turns out some of that island is gold. And when that news hits Australia, Young men everywhere pack up and set sail in search of their fortune. That's where Errol's going. New Guinea. He's another face off the boat and on the make. It's sweaty and humid. The air hums with mosquitoes. Errol tries anything he can get his hands on. He blags a job running a coconut plantation. He pans for gold. He captains a ship, he's living lean, living off his wits. Every day, he relies on his clenched fists and quick mind to get food on his plate and stay out of trouble. At night, he huddles around the hurricane lamp, reading books, learning the lessons he ignored in school. He realises his fortune can come in other ways. Gold's elusive but a silver tongue? That can take him far. And he can find it in pages and people if he reads enough, if he listens carefully. He soaks up the words of Russian novelists, Greek philosophers, French thinkers. This is how Errol describes those nights. I plunged into reading as if it were my most vital need. I felt a growth of power, a kind of certainty. I'd be able to talk of these men and their works. I adopted the speech and the manners of the characters I read about, borrowing what seemed useful. And Errol needs it sooner than he realises. He takes a job as a recruiter, trekking through the jungle to remote villages. It's his job to con and convince locals. To bring them into the farms and mines. To get them to swap their freedom for little more than bed and board and fake promises. Errol's three days into a week-long trek. He's searching for new victims. Finding men who haven't heard the truth about the white man's lies. It's him and seven local boys carrying his possessions over dark mud and rocky gorges. Errol's mind's foggy. Fatigue, heat stroke, malaria. Could be any of them. Could be all of them. And then a sudden sound, a sound that snaps him sober and alert. The air slices in two as the thunk of a spear hits its target. A boy falls, dead. The others run. Errol dives for cover. He draws his revolver, his heart thumping, his body tight and tense, his brain fizzing with adrenaline. Then he spots a flicker of movement in the trees. He squeezes the trigger once, twice, the forest echoes with the whipcrack of the shots. Birds, spooked from their perches, fly up to the sky. Two local tribesmen are dead. And the Australians want to make an example of Errol. To prove that they care. To keep the peace and the profits rolling. Errol reads up and represents himself in a makeshift courtroom. He's striding in front of rows of benches made out of coconut trunks. He pleads self-defense, says he could do no less, says any man in his shoes would have acted the same. And his argument hits home with the Australians. It plays on paranoia and mistrust, the loathing between colonizer and colonized, between settlers and the men they deem savages. So the magistrate frees Errol and his decision prompts another. Errol knows he needs to leave before his luck runs out. He needs to head somewhere where the stakes are lower and the prizes are bigger. We'll get back to that after this quick break.
1: Hello, I'm Sam Walker. I've spent the last few months talking to this guy.
2: I'm a hunter.
0: That's what I do.
1: He's called KC.
0: Our rules of engagement are pretty simple. If we have to pull a trigger on one person, they're all going to go.
1: He's an American vigilante.
0: And there is one of the biggest men I've ever seen. And he's got a knife in his hand.
1: He rescues kidnapped children.
0: There's no feeling in the world like putting a child back in the arms of its parents.
1: By any means necessary.
0: Well, it's ugly. You want me to make sure I don't hurt
1: anybody? He scares me.
0: And he kind of looked at me and I said, I swear to God, I said, if you do anything other than what I told you to do, I said, I'm going to kill you right here.
1: And he might scare you.
0: You've got tears in your eyes right now just thinking about that, don't you?
1: Download the podcast. American Vigilante.
0: Download American Vigilante. Out now. Now.
2: Hey Hey there.
1: I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon!
2: It's the start of the 1930s, and things are changing. You could shoot films in color a decade ago, but the question is, is it worth it? The cameras are clunky. The process is fiddly. The costs are massive. And the extra returns at the box office are nowhere near enough to cover it. Not when the Great Depression has made funding so much harder to find. Not when budgets have been stripped back. Not when black and white flicks are still packing out screens. For a studio to fund a colour film, it has to be special. Special circumstances, special plot, special star. And in 1938, the Warner Brothers are finally convinced. Errol's dash and daring has been a hit with audiences. In a few years, he's risen from unknown Australian stage actor to Hollywood's action hero. In Captain Blood, a movie three years before, he's a pirate who steals ships, treasures and hearts. Now they've got a script for a remake of Robin Hood, another outlaw who makes good and gets the girl. The scenes are less expensive to shoot. There's more color contrast in the forest and there's Errol, a star who seems a sure bet. The executives are in and they sign off. The first color movie in the studio's history. Robin Hood in glorious technicolor. People can't wait to see it. Actors can't wait to be in it. During filming, there's a balcony scene where Errol clambers up the side of a castle to kiss his maid, Marion. The actress messes up her lines, stumbles, falters. She can't get her words straight. Not when she's this close to Errol. Once, twice, three times the director orders Errol back to the start of the scene, and each time she revels once more in her team dream of kissing him. Errol on the other hand, he doesn't need the practice. He likes sex almost as much as he likes talking about it. And he has a wife and a marriage that's slowly falling apart as he lives faster and faster. He rents a house with another actor, a pal he meets while playing cricket. Every night it's a hazy carousel of bodies and booze, Errol lusting and drinking with an epic appetite for both. One visitor walks in on him, having sex with one girl, while another stands next to the bed, patiently waiting her turn. Sometimes Errol does a little party piece to break the ice, He lifts the lid on the piano and plays a tune with his penis. He's not shy about it in public either. In one interview, he's asked about his vices. Reporters know that he always supplies some gossip or decent line. He sums it up by saying, I like my whiskey old and my women young. What he doesn't mention are the drugs. The cocaine that keeps the party running, the opium that takes the edge off the comedown. down. Errol pursues his hedonism like a religion. And in 1941, at the end of a dusty dirt road overlooking the San Fernando Valley, he builds its high church. It's a two-story ranch with a pool, riding ring, tennis court, and a casino. He says he designed it himself for rest, recreation, good living, romping and roistering. His words, What visitors can't see are the two-way mirrors in the bedrooms, the peepholes in the showers, the passageways that bypass locked doors, the cameras that roll unseen behind fake walls. The house is a set, where Errol watches unsuspecting women for his own pleasure. Ever the star, he slips into the audience, a voyeur in full technicolour. In a cold room in a freezing Vancouver, there's a pathologist who doesn't quite know what to do. He's sawed through the fat to the rib cage. He's weighed the bloated heart. He's noted the color of the rotting liver. But there's something else. Something he's less used to seeing. He's examining Errol's corpse on a stainless steel table. And he looks at his penis. It's covered in clusters of enormous genital warts. A colleague is ready with a scalpel. He wants to pickle them for future generations as a teaching aid for doctors, as a warning for young lovers. Even in death, Errol can't escape the myth he sold and the life he led. And by the end, he knows it as the money runs out, leaking away to pay for new children, old wives, and films that'll never be. All he's left with is an image, the insatiable womanizer, always one step ahead of trouble, only one away from his next conquest. It's his image, but it's spiraled in other people's hands. Gossip columnists, book publishers, A new generation of young men who hold him up as a folk hero. They buy into Errol's legend and sell it on. There's even a catchphrase. They say they're in like Flynn with a smirk. Washed up and wrung out, Errol writes about the last years of his life. This is what he says. What had I become? I knew all too well. A phallic symbol. All around the world I was, as a name and personality, equated with sex. I was used as a piece of chalk to provide the world with a dab of colour. And his death comes with a final flourish. He's in Canada to make money, hunting down cash to stem the losses. It's a life he's led before, in New Guinea, but this time it's British Columbia. He's there to haggle over his yacht, to barter up a good price from a businessman who wants to buy it. He isn't alone either. Beverly, a 17-year-old streak of blonde hair and clear skin, is on his 50-year-old arm. When they arrive at the airport, a reporter asks Errol why he prefers the company of such young women. Errol doesn't do suave and smooth now, though. He's too tired and old for that. There's no arched eyebrow and playful soundbite. The old smoothie has finally worn course. The newspaper reports his reply to the question as direct, detailed and completely unsuited for a family journal. The answer they didn't dare print, Errol's explanation? He likes young women because they fuck so good. Errol soon agrees a deal with the stockbroker buying his boat and sets about spending his money. So they hit the night spots drinking and dancing. After a week, they drive to the airport to catch a flight home. Only, they don't make it. Errol's back is playing up. His health is interrupting the fun more and more these days. His doctors have told him to slow down after taking a scan of his stressed heart. The bouts of malaria he first caught in New Guinea are getting more regular. For Errol though, there's always a quick fix to keep living the fast life. He diverts the car to a private doctor The doctor shoots morphine into his back. Flynn kicks back and relaxes. He rolls out a few of the old golden stories. He settles on catching the next flight instead. He'll just go for a lie down. Twenty minutes later, Beverly's screams rip through the doctor's apartment and into the quiet street outside. Errol's on the bed. His grizzled face turned dark grey. His chest still... And eyes glazed. The doctor rushes in. He injects Errol with amyl nitrate and then a shot of adrenaline straight to the heart. Beverly wails. Errol doesn't move. It's all over. He's buried with his other love, six bottles of his favourite whiskey. They're placed in the casket as he's lowered into his grave on a bright LA morning. 200 people sit outside the church, listening to the last rites, marking the demise of a fallen star. His friends don't pay tribute to him. Instead, they evoke the mystique of him at the height of his fame, the untamable and irresistible rogue. One says, you can't rely on Errol Flynn. He'll always let you down. Before he dies, Errol looks back at the broken marriages, the wrecked young lives, the debts, the children scattered and remote, and he finds solace in the same place he always looked to for joy, the same thing he's chased all his life, the present moment, the next thrill. He says, maybe it hasn't all been so futile, maybe it wasn't all a waste. And it's easy for Errol to look at it like that. To always look forward. It's harder for Peggy, the girl who stood opposite him in court. This is what she says. I knew those women on the jury would acquit him. They sat there and looked at him adoringly. Just like he was their son or something. Because she knows how powerful men can always stay one step ahead of their past. How, in Hollywood's golden age, they rarely have to reflect on consequences. How the gloss hides the flaws. How a star like Errol can dazzle and deceive. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For research, we read from Errol Flynn's autobiography, My Wicked, Wicked Ways, as well as from the archives of Monte Cristo Magazine, The Vancouver Sun, The Hollywood Reporter, Vanity Fair, The New York Post and The Independent. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If you'd like another podcast to listen to, try our other episodes about Marilyn Monroe or James Dean. Thanks for listening.
1: Crowd Network, a place where you belong.